Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. Today's episode is a recording of an event held live via Zoom during the COVID-19 pandemic. It is a conversation between author Christos Tsiokas and author Chris Flynn about Chris's new book, Mammoth. A warning, as this is an internet recording, there has been an impact on the sound quality of the episode. To introduce both Christos and Chris, from the University of Queensland Press, here is publisher Aviva Tuffield. Thank you. Firstly, I would also like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunwaram peoples of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land from which I am Zooming tonight and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging and to recognise that sovereignty was never ceded. I'd also like to thank Chris Gordon and the fabulous readings team for arranging this launch and for all they are doing to support writers, publishers and readers during this time of social distancing. They deserve our loyal support in return. It's a special day for all of us at UQP as it's publication day for this incredible book, Mammoth by Chris Flynn. I've known Chris for a long time and have always wanted to publish his work. So when the proposal for his third novel dropped into my inbox, I was very excited. Then I opened the document and read the first lines of the synopsis and I have to admit they did give me pause. Narrated by the 13,000-year-old fossil of an American mastodon, Mammoth is the mostly true story of how the skull of a Tyrannosaurus batar, the fossilised bones of a dire wolf, a pterodactyl, a prehistoric penguin, the severed hand of an Egyptian mummy, and the narrator himself came to be on sale at a 2007 natural history auction in Manhattan. I have to admit, I thought to myself, that flim will have to be pretty bloody good to pull this one off. Well, the rest, as they say, is history because here we are, and I'm one very proud publisher of this amazing book. Mammoth is an extraordinary feat of the imagination. Not only has Chris ventriloquized all sorts of fo- animals, nay fossils, that we've never encountered in fiction before, but he also deals with one of the most pressing issues of our times, humanity's impact on the natural world and its consequences. This book is intriguing, insightful, and moving, but it's also laugh out loud funny, and uplifting and ultimately optimistic. And that's a really rare combination in fiction. And as one reviewer has pointed out, it could not be more timely, stating, it's particularly moving to be reading Mammoth at a time like the one we find ourselves in, when we're questioning the very nature of the way we live and how it might change for the betterment of the planet. And once you finish reading and learn how deeply researched this book is, and how much of what you'd assume was just Flynn blather, is actually rooted in fact, your mind will be further blown. This book embodies the dictum that truth is stranger than fiction, but fiction tells it better. Before I hand over to the hominid of the moment, I just want to pay tribute to Felicity Dunning, who is Chris's editor at UQP. Felicity tuned in to Chris's wavelength, strange as it is, and the two of them started channeling the different fossils' voices. And frankly, we're lucky, given they both studied drama, that they're not reenacting a scene for us online tonight. For all I know, perhaps the two of them are TikTok famous for some fossil dance. Congratulations, Chris. What a triumph this book is. And this is how we clap in the online silent world. You just wave your hands. Yay to Chris. Now I'd like to introduce Christos Cholkus, who has generously agreed to be in conversation with Chris Flynn tonight about Mammoth. Christos hardly needs any introduction, but as we know, he is the author of six novels, including Loaded, which was made into the feature film Head On, The Jesus Man and Dead Europe, which won the 2006 Age Fiction Prize and the 2006 Melbourne Best Writing Award. 
His fourth novel was the international bestseller, The Slap, and his latest novel, Damascus, recently won the 2020 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction. Over to you, Chris and Christos. Look, it's um, uh, a triumph is, um, is, is absolutely the right word. Uh, I said, Chris, and I mean this, I, I'm really glad we're able to do this because um, I, I want there to be a space to celebrate Mammoth. I think it is remarkable, just as Aviva said. Um, I, uh, I, I would so wish it was in a physical space where I could give you a big hug <laughs> and um, to just convey how much... Um, how impressed I am, how moved I, I was by, by the novel, how, uh, how I was astonished. And I think I said that kind of writing to, to you all about, about the book, that you put me right in the head of, or in the space where I, within a few lines, were believing that I was listening to the voice of a 13,000-year-old mammoth. <laughs> okay, so that's, that is a, a remarkable achievement that you've done, sir. And it's also a, um, a, a book that is, uh, I think, an, a deeply uh, relevant and a deeply moving and a deeply funny satire about what we are as humans and where we are at this moment. And I'm going to park that, that observation um, until later in our conversation, but I, I would love to hear you on satire because I don't think it's something we necessarily do very well in the literary world in Australia. We may do it in other ways. So, but I do want to acknowledge you've done that. And I think that Mammoth is, is a, a remarkable satire. And I think that's an achievement that I want to be acknowledged. Um, so, as Aviva does, I want to I wanna, I wanna do that. Um, I'm going to start the conversation with not a particularly original question, but because the novel is so original, I just want to go right down to the, the basics, Chris. I want to hear it and I want the audience to hear. How did you come across this story? How did this novel form? Well, the problem I always have with novels is that um, they form very slowly over a period of time and they're usually an um, amalgamation of ideas that come at me from different directions and somehow form into a story and it's frustrating that it happens that way. Um, I, I wish I could just say, well, it just came up to me one day, the idea of writing a story from the point of view of a mammoth, but um, it was a long time coming, the story. Um, the actual writing of the story was much shorter than the um, conception of the story and the thinking about the story. I don't know about you, but um, I often, the, the way I work is I'll spend probably several years thinking about a story and not actually writing anything at all. Um, sometimes out of fear because I think, oh, I've got this idea and I'm, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm able to do it justice or whether I've quite got the the maturity or the talent to be able to tackle it, or I just don't know how to come at the story. And so with this one, I had originally read, um, as I'm a bit of a history buff, and I'd read um, some letters that uh, President Thomas Jefferson had written, um, which were only, he, he wrote a lot of letters, he had a lot of correspondence. And about 10 years ago, they released a bunch of letters that had never been published before. And in there was a letter he wrote about 10 days after the election in 1800. And at that time, 
he hadn't been president um, and he, he was up for the presidency. They had the election, which lasted for ages. As in those days, it took ages to actually um, vote because they had to travel around the country collecting all the votes. Um, but the election was done and it was early December and it would, they wouldn't actually be able to count all the votes and decide who had won the presidential election until February of the following year. So he had just conducted a presidential election. And a week later, he was writing letters to people asking them, could they find him some mammoth bones? And in fact, could they find him a live specimen? Because he didn't really know, as a lot of um, the new Americans didn't know, um, what was out there. And I thought it was very curious that he was um, more interested in the bones of some dead fossil than whether he or not he'd won the bloody election. <laughs> um, and it turned out, of course, that he was fascinated with um, the, the history of America um, prior to the white man coming there. And um, he wanted to prove to the Europeans that America was this big, powerful, strong nation. Democracy was new there and um, was a bit sort of poo-pooed by the Europeans, especially the French who, were, who had their own version of democracy that was very, um, very successful. And so he just wanted to show the French that there used to be great, massive creatures that lived in America because no one knew. So it's got a long history for that. Right. And um, then secondary to that, I read about the um, auction, the natural history auctions. These natural history auctions take place every, every year in New York um, where they sell uh, all sorts of ephemera. They sell um, the bones of dinosaurs, uh, megafauna. They sell meteorites. Um, they sell gold nuggets, uh, sharks' teeth, all sorts of things. And anyone can just walk in and peruse the exhibits and, and place a bid. Um, and in 2007, there was the bones of all these animals for sale. And when I read about that, including a mammoth, a mammoth tusk, and when I read about that, I, there was a little connection was made. And I thought, isn't that strange that Jefferson was commodifying the mammoth for his own purposes of machismo. He, he wanted to show how big and strong the Americans were. And then in fast forward um, 200 years, and these bones are being fought over by celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio and Nicolas Cage, because <laughs> they want to put him up on the wall of their, of their house to show how you know, macho they are. They're still doing it. And so I thought, oh, that would be a great story to be able to link those. But it wasn't until I thought about writing it from the point of view of the animals or the, or the fossils that I realized that was the way in to telling the story because they could be observers of um, us dumb humans over the last few hundred years. When did that, when did that moment happen? I'm always fascinated by it because, you know, that, that notion that, that, that there are gifts that we get as writers, that a moment, that's, I mean, that's the audaciousness of the novel and that's what you pull off so successfully. But when did it come? When did, uh, and had you thought of, of telling the story in another way through a human voice or was it? Oh, I did. I, I actually had a few earlier drafts of the novel that were told from the point of view of um, one of the Irish characters. Um, uh, and it was set about 30 years prior to 1800. And, and he was one of the group of pioneers who was, recruited um, to go out into the wilderness and try and secure some mammoth bones, um, which was a real thing. I read some diaries of, of, of men who were out in the Kentucky wilderness um, 
looking at the bones that were uh, trapped in the mire there and digging them up in order to take them back to sell to the wealthy men of New York. Um, and I tried it from that angle and it ran out of steam pretty quickly. Um, I, it was fine up to a point. It was all very sort of Cormac McCarthy-esque, but um, <laughs> and, and I really wasn't enjoying it that much because it was so sort of grim and serious. There was lots of mud and, you know, <laughs> So it's going to be a very different novel then. Mm, it would have been. It would have been essentially about um, this group of um, rough and tumble men going out to try and find these mammoth bones, and of course, it all going badly wrong. And that sort of is now in the background to the story. It's mentioned very briefly, and that comes from a, a, a previous draft. But it just, it just didn't have any steam. I sort of, you know, yourself. You sometimes get an idea and you start writing. And you think, oh, this is going to be great. And then you get 20,000 words in and you realize... Oh, no, it's not great. <laughs> it's, it's not great. And I don't know where to go from here. How am I meant to tease this out into a novel and, um, with, without it being awful? And so I did a few attempts from the human point of view. wasn't working at all. But I was working at the RSPCA um, for the last five years um, in the, the RSPCA in Burwood. And... Um, in the cattery, looking after sick and injured um, cats and kittens, believe it or not. Um, and that's you and so, I share, actually, that we've worked. That's right. You worked for the RSPCA too, didn't you? No, not for the RSPCA, but, uh, RSPCA, but in a vet clinic as a, as a nurse. That's right. You did. You did. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I thought about becoming a vet nurse too. That's funny. Um, but I was, I, was, I, was, I was like a pseudo-vet nurse because I, I worked in the isolation. I was pretty pseudo too, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I worked in the isolation uh, unit where the animals had various diseases, including coronavirus. Um, we often had cats who came in with coronavirus, but of course it hadn't, um, the, the virus hadn't worked out how to trans, transmute itself to humans at that stage. Um, but working with animals in a very you know close personal basis um animals that were sick and injured trying to help them get better trying to gain their trust and help them understand that not all humans are bad um the unofficial motto of the rspca that i probably shouldn't say in public but i'm going to say it anyway is uh four legs good two legs bad um because it was proven to you every day um but working with animals in that very personal level, you become very aware of their internal life and the way that they communicate with each other and with us. And so the idea of um, interspecies communication and um, a sort of complex in, in, internal life of um, animals made me think, oh, maybe it's the animals who could tell the story. So that it was actually working directly with animals that made me realize that there was perhaps a way into this novel that I'd been banging my head against for years. Um, and as soon as I sat down and thought, I'm going to get the mammoth to tell the story and see where that goes, it was game on. Yep. Um, it, it was one of the questions I wanted to ask because I, I knew we had that shared experience working with animals. And uh, my experience of it, uh, it was seven, eight years that I worked for a friend who was a vet. And it was part, one of the best periods of my life and I, the thing I say about it Chris is that I came away with a with a great love and respect for for animals but got stripped of all the sentimentality 
that I had been attached there before that. And, and really it was in the, in the moment of, of seeing the animal suffer and uh, seeing it, that moment of death too and the, the relationship that happens between a pet and its, and its owner. Mm. That I think will never leave me. That, 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 that's been something that's moved into my work in different ways. But that's another conversation for another day. What I'm interested in it is, you know, working at the vet clinic, I, I wondered how to write in the voice of another species. Mm. You're right. You know, and I, I remember returning to Jack London, people like that who had tried it, but it was, it was daunting. So I'm really, I'm really, uh, fucking impressed. Sorry. Can I swear on these things? I'm impressed. And also a bit envious that you did that. You, you, you did that and you how and, but you know, what, what was daunting was how do you find that voice? You said that as soon as you started writing the voice of mammoth, you, you knew you had the book. What was it? What was it about that voice? Um, it, it was a kind of ethereal feeling. I'm not much for, um, I'm not one of these authors who likes to, you know, talk too much about the muse or, you know, uh, the voices of your characters, you know, your characters speaking through you, your characters somehow existing in the world. Um, but it was a little bit creepy, to be honest. Um, the mammoth I knew had been dug up in 1800 and I'd been researching so much about what happened in and around that time in history that once his, once he started speaking, he, he spoke like someone from 1800, um, uh, someone sort of wise and, and, and it's really sage like, I really, yes, I bet about, yeah, he's, he's a sort of wise old fellow, but, He's also a bit cantankerous and a bit sort of fixated on detail and also a bit of an exaggerator, a bit of a storyteller. Um, and um, it, the, the initial sort of 10 pages of the book were actually the first words I ever wrote on the book. And they remained fairly unchanged. Felicity, my editor, who's here tonight, she'll, she'll testify to that. We actually didn't fool around with it very much because I just, it just blurted out of me those first sort of 10 pages. And then... I, I just sat with that for a few months, just staring at it, thinking, oh, okay, that looks like a good voice to write in. But I had that little moment where it sort of came out of me and I wasn't sure if I'd be able to reproduce that um, on, a longer, on a longer piece of work. And that's when I started thinking, okay, I need to work about, I need to think about the other animals and yeah. what kind of voices they have. And that's when I came up with the idea, well, if he speaks like someone, and, and an educated American from the 1800s, because that's when he was dug up. Wouldn't they all just speak like when and where they were dug up? So the Tyrannosaurus had been dug up in the 1990s and um, was spent a lot of his, ta his time in a, in a warehouse in Miami. So that's why he speaks the way he does. He's, he speaks like a, a sort of a teenager from Florida. And the penguin spent most of his life hanging over a bar in Boston. So he speaks like a, a grumpy guy in a bar in Boston. Um, and then it just became so much fun. And I mean, when it comes to writing books for me, I, I find them very difficult to write. And um, if I'm not enjoying myself, then it's just pure misery. So as soon as I was what do you able do? to- What do you do when it's, it's misery? How do you change it? I usually, um, I usually will throw in some jokes and see what, and see what lands. And,
I mean, I've got that, I've got that sort of terrible habit of terrible Irish habit, really of making light of everything. And, um, it has served me well, but also held me back in life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because, you know, in Ireland, we like to laugh at funerals, you know, so, um, and it, and and it's not, it's not to everyone's taste. Um, so, um, but what, what's intoxicating about reading Mammoth and, you know, I, I read it, uh, some time ago, Chris, and there, and then just the last few days, going back to it, and I think intoxicating is the right word. And this was, I remember feeling nervous originally when I got it. Going, I hope one because you know, am I going to be convinced by this voice? That's going to be crucial. But the other one was, I didn't want it to be earnest, and not you know, I kind of thought, well, this is a novel about how we've got to this really terrible situation in terms of what we as a species have done in exploiting this planet. And there, and I actually think it is satire, it is comedy that is able to avoid that earnestness and that laboriousness that can come out of so many political texts. Mm. So uh, you talk about your personal life, that satire as, as a, someone from an Irish heritage is, is possibly a distancing thing. But what I find reading it is that it allows me, in laughing, in being able to... Um, kind of think about the stupidity and inanity of the human world, it, it brought me closer to going, uh, uh, I've got to change something about my life and the way I am. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, humor sorry, as there's, a... There's yeah. That's the gift that you've offered in this book. Well, that's very generous of you. And um, I, I do love satire. And, and I don't think, I mean, you mentioned at the top that, we don't probably have enough satire in Australia, and I do I do agree with that. Um, ironically, my middle name is genuinely Ernest. <laughs> uh, my name is Christopher Ernest Flynn, um, but I'm not a very earnest person at all. And my father's Ernest, and he's not very earnest either. Um, I have a little bit of an issue, probably, with the over earnestness of a lot of Australian fiction. Yeah, um, it, it gets on my gets on my nerves a little bit. Um, because it's a little bit at odds with Australian life to me. I mean, I came here 20 years ago, and to me, Australia is quite similar to Ireland, except it's sunnier here. Um, but the people um, are so friendly and love to laugh at, at each other all the time. And I wish that was reflected a little bit more in um, literature and film and other you know, Australian art forms. I do worry that in Australia, we've, we still um, haven't quite grown into ourselves and are a bit worried about what the world thinks of us. And we think that we have to be deadly, deadly serious in order to be taken seriously. And also humor in Australia is probably a little bit associated with larrikinism and the old sort of Paul Hogan shows. And we're a little bit embarrassed about that. And so people are a little bit nervous about being funny in art in, in case it gets sort of dismissed as, uh, as being silly. Um, but, Humor is a great vehicle for um, for delivering a serious message, and um, something that's just rel- relentlessly serious. I find very hard to take in. Whereas, if someone is going to um, tell me a joke in the middle of telling me serious, uh, uh, telling me something serious, I'll be able to um, listen a lot more closely. Well, that uh, I think that's 
that's another conversation that I would love to have with you one day, mate, is about why in literature we haven't really been able to do comedy and satire. Because I think there is in Australian television, for example, that there, there, there mm. is comedy that, that we can do that's really sharp um, uh, and that's, that, that really hits the marks. And that's, that's both uh, uh, popular and sophisticated at the same time. Um, and maybe you're right, maybe there's something about the... the that maybe there's something about the age we live in and the politics and the kind of crisis and COVID-19 has sort of made that maybe even more acute that pushes towards earnestness and kind of saying things in black and white. How did you avoid that temptation with Mammoth? Mm. Um, it, it kind of just worked itself out really. Um, as soon as I was delving into history, I was a little, a little bit wary about writing something historical. I'd never done it before, and, and I'm sure you scary, isn't it? I'm, I'm sure you shit yourself with Damascus. <laughs> um, and as you know, there's there are so many rabbit holes that you can get lost in, and um, obstacles that you come up against, whereby you think, "Oh, wait a minute, I have to make sure that that's actually correct," or that they yeah. would that they would have um, said that. It's quite time. terrifying, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot more sort of um, minutiae you have to concentrate on than, than people might imagine. And uh, the, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was about Damascus and the, um, the uh, swearing and uh, sexual language in Damascus and whether people have pulled you up on that or not to say that that was um, anachronistic. I mean, you probably researched it and found out that they that they spoke much more filthy versions of uh, yeah. language than we actually do today i mean that's uh in a, in, a, in a similar way the i mean i'm sure you were dealing with the the question of how do you use language because that's what we are writers right mm -hmm. and uh the first two two maybe two and a half drafts of damascus were awful because i was trying to I was trying to be faithful to what I thought through the research was the way people spoke. But it's a bit like a best example is if you were to read the original of um, Chaucer, it would make absolutely no bloody sense, right? So what you're looking for is a, transla a translation from someone who, is, who you trust knows their history. Um, and, you know, someone who knows their language, someone who knows where, and they're going to create a translation that is uh, going to make sense to you as a reader in 2020, which I think is what you were dealing with and doing uh, with Mammoth as well, in terms of, you know, the voice of a 13,000 year old creature. I mean, right. mine was only 2000 years ago and I was terrified. Of doing <laughs> what, I, what I hoped you could, what I hope I did, and I don't know if, you know, you've, you don't always succeed within a novel itself, was that I hope that I did a translation of good faith. And, you know, it didn't matter whether they used those particular words, it was whether that word in the context of our contemporary ear would bring you back to a point 2,000 years ago. And that would be what you were doing with the research. I actually really enjoy um, that etymology stuff, um, looking into the origin of words and and phrases. Um, and Felicity and I had, I mean, Aviva mentioned that we quickly fell into step with each other because we find a commonality. I mean, we're old 
were former actors, so we enjoyed the <laughs> theatricality of it all. And but also the um, looking at the origin of words, I find that stuff fascinating. I love and, that. And and we had to be very careful, but it was it was fun. I mean, I'm sure some people would hate it, but we really enjoyed, you know, doing edits on the manuscript where we would pull each other up and say, "Wait a minute, what about this word? Would that is that a word that someone would have used in the word in, in the year 1801?" When was that word invented? When did it first come into common parlance? And you, and you can get caught out very easily by things you think are old are not, and things you think are new are not. They're old. Um, one of the ones that there was a phrase one of the characters used. He he says um, the hair of the dog, which is you know af, uh, when you're hungover and you have yeah. another drink. And I think Felicity and I both thought. Uh, that's that's going to be pretty modern. It's not. It's four thousand years old. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's something they used in um, ancient Syria, and in a very literal sense. So if you were hungover or affected by drink, um, you would make up a potion of some uh, some herbs, some oils, and you would take some shavings off your dog, and you would mix it in. And it was believed that that would make you feel better. It's a pity that I'm a cat person. <laughs> um, my friend, um, in, in the, if we were in the readings bookshop, um, I, Chris Gordon at the back would be giving me a sign that it's time to go to questions. Um, so, uh, but being on Zoom, I get a little orange button that, that flashes. So Ooh. we've got people who want to ask you questions, Chris. So I don't know how we're going to do this. Let's ask away. Well, we can do it a couple of ways, Christos. We can, uh, I can get you to read them out. I'm sending them over to you or I can read them out. Uh, but I keep sending them to you. But I guess let's start with one from Tony Birch. Uh, what do you think about that? Should we do that? Let's do that. Yeah. He says, uh, considering Chris Flynn, considering Christos's point, what we are as humans in the writing of Mammoth and now with its publication, do you have a view on our ability to deal communally and not only with the issues your fiction deals with, but crises such as climate change and the current global coronavirus pandemic? If you could just answer that in a brief few seconds, <laughs> that would be terrific, Chris. <laughs> right. That's, that's a fair question. I noticed Tony has a mouthful of noodles, so it's just as well we didn't throw over to him to ask. <laughs> um, the... I am an optimist, and I know that's probably a little bit rare for writers, um, but I believe that, um, that intelligence and creativity and imagination will win in the end, that they will trump, excuse the, we can, we, we can never use the word trump again, can we? Will trump things like greed and stupidity. And one of the things that uh, I have enjoyed with Mammoth is, presenting, I mean, it's not giving away the ending too much, you know, but uh, presenting an ending whereby it's a hopeful end. The, the idea being that we are, we are actually cloning some of these creatures back to life. We are trying to correct some of our mistakes that we made in the past, where we you know, destroyed um, entire ecosystems, and we're still doing that. Um, but there are intelligent, you know, imaginative people out there trying to think of ways we can claw ourselves back from the brink by um, putting ourselves back in touch with the natural kingdom and restoring them 
and allowing them to have the role in the world that they were supposed to have all along. And we live in, you know, obviously amazing times because there's always something happening in our world, <laughs> good and bad. Um, but I, I do believe that um, probably particularly now in the last few months and the coming few months, we do have a lot of time to reflect on our mistakes perhaps. And we are seeing, of course, incidentally or accidentally, we're seeing what happens to the world, um, the world's climate, whenever there's no airplanes in the sky, there's not many cars on the road, and a lot of industry is shut down, and um, the wildlife is returning. I live on Phillip Island, and um, you can, I can go for a ride in my motorbike, and there's not a single other car on the road, and I have to be extra, extra careful because there's way more animals than, than there was a month ago. There's tons of birds and, and, and creatures. Something ran across the road in front of me the other day. I don't even know what it was. I got a great message from a friend of mine in Mumbai and she said, you know, she said on one, I'm paraphrasing, but she said on one level, it's distressing because I'm thinking of everyone out of work in a country, there's a lot of poverty, but she said, I, there, I have not heard birdsong in all my life in this city, the way I've heard it over the last month, which is an incredible, you know, that's having been to that city, that's an incredible thing that the, that world has returned to it. Now, Chris, do you want me, Christine, do you want me to read stuff out or? I, I think that's terrific. Can, have you seen that lovely one from Mia? I, how, where do I see it? Uh, I sent it to you. As an email? Uh, no, on your, <laughs> what did oh. I read it out? What did I read it yeah, out? Yeah, I think you should read it out. <laughs> right, here we go. Hello, I'm being a papu. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> Old granddad. <laughs> Uh, so this one is from a lovely woman called Nea and she says, I know Chris has previously said that he doesn't experience uh, writer's block. In fact, that he has an abundance of ideas and concepts and he's tempted by all of the rabbit holes uh, when he was researching this book. But so how does Chris deal with this? How does he remain focused and not overwhelmed by all of the options that he has available? You know, years ago, I was asked um, by Angela Meyer, um, what was, who was my favorite literary character? And I had to think on my feet because it was a video interview. And I said, um, probably a little bit flippantly, The Incredible Hulk. Um, and, um, but in one of those silly Marvel movies, uh, the Hulk um, is able to, or, What's the actor who plays the Hulk, that really handsome guy? Uh, Eric Banner. No, not Eric Banner. That was, <laughs> that was years ago. He's a pretty handsome guy. <laughs> yeah, he is handsome. He is. He is. He is. Um, the new Hulk in the Marvel movies. Anyway, he, he was able to suddenly change on the spur of the moment into the Hulk. And someone said, how did you do that? You're not, you weren't angry. And he said, I'm always angry. And so he can do it at any time. And to answer that question, I'm, I'm pretty much always overwhelmed um, by uh, my creative brain, which I wish I could tone it down, um, turn down the volume sometimes, uh, switch it off, because I can be in the middle of working on a project and fully into it. And um, suddenly a bunch of other ideas come in that seem so much more attractive. And you want to put your, the one you're working on to the side and 
and give some space to these other ones. Uh, years ago, I came up with the analogy that there was a, that I was basically sitting at a, a desk. It was everything was white. It was like I was in in heaven. I'm sitting at a desk with my laptop, and there's a big queue of people, and that's all the ideas I have. And I'm occasionally I stare up and look down the queue and think, bloody hell. And sometimes someone will jump the queue and make their way closer to the front because I like the look of them and other ideas will sort of move to the back. But really what I should do is walk along the queue with a pistol and um, (laughs) execute a few of them Um, because it can be very hard to know, Mia, which ideas will have legs and which ones are just um, fun ideas. Um, so it's a, it's more of a curse than a blessing, I think, um, because you know my publisher will Aviva will say, "What are you working on next?" And there are multiple answers I could give her, so um, I have to choose my answer very carefully <laughs> because once it's out there, she'll say, "Oh, how's it going in that project?" And, oh, no, no. Yeah. Can I uh, just what well, you can ask the next one, Chris? Do you think there is a time limit on an idea, Chris? I'm thinking about that because there's something that's been sitting in my back there in that queue for about 10 years now. And I wonder, does that mean I have to shoot them? <laughs> <laughs> it, it probably does. It probably, you, you probably have to put that idea down. I mean, you were a vet nurse. You probably <laughs> were, were there at the moment of death for many small furry animals. So you probably need to adapt that same uh, attitude yeah. towards it. Um, I, yeah. My editor and I were talking today about an idea I had when I was 17 and she said, oh, you should write that. There's no way I'm writing that idea. There's no way I'm doing it. I, everybody, everybody out there in our, our Zoom land, we're coming to the end of it. Uh, it's time now really to say thank you and farewell. Uh, but before we go, I do want to let you know that a number of people have written to me tonight uh, in the comment section to tell me that it's Mark Ruffalo, that in fact it plays. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and many, many of the audience members are with you, Christos, when they say, he's very handsome. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a little by the by <laughs> on tonight. Uh, to you, Mr Flynn, to you, Chris Flynn, thank you so much and congratulations. An enormous uh, effort. And we are so, so pleased to have you here tonight talking about your book. On behalf of everyone at Readings, we are delighted to be uh, playing this very small part in the launch of your third novel. What a treat for all of us. To you, Christos, uh, you know that you are literally one of our favourite people in the world. That's, that's very lovely, but I do, wanna, I do want to say, because this is um, about Mammoth and it's about Chris's writing, that, you know, I use the word astonished and I, I, I've talked to all of you about this, that, you know, that's what I hanker, whether it's a book, a film, a piece of music, you just want to be astonished. And I was astonished reading Mammoth. Um, I am, I'm just in awe of you, Mr Flynn. Congratulations. Kinda, it's, a, it's a real proud honour to be able to launch this book. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. 
We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty is never ceded.